there everybody and welcome to Blaze Explains. Uh, we have an awesome topic today, uh, in fact it's one of great interest to me and so massive we are not going to even do an outline of it justice but we'll give it a crack. As usual going to use some definitions and stats to give us an outline here but there's lots to uncover. The topic is developing economies. Just to be clear this is arguably most of the world although some of them certainly in different stages of development to the other. And um, the world has changed rapidly over the last 70 years, even over the last 10 years. Uh, parts of the developing world, I think one famous statistic, and don't quote me on exactly where it comes from, but I think it's something like this, is the infant mortality rate, which was always an issue of major concern, and should be, uh, in Africa today, is the same as it was in Europe in 1952, which is absolutely unbelievable. But testament to how fast things are changing. Also, fastest growing economies in Africa. So number one, definitions and the problems that come with them. IGI Global defined developing economies as a country with a less developed industrial base and a low human development index compared to other countries. The World Bank has for many years referred to low- and middle-income countries as developing countries for convenience in publications, but even if this definition was reasonable in the past, it's worth asking if it has remained so, and if a more granular definition is warranted. That quote from the World Bank itself. Now, there's two sides to this. You need a, a way to refer in a universally understood manner to a group of countries um, in, in reportage. There's, there's no way around that. You need to do it. But also, it does need to develop, and you do need to find ways to uh, gradate that, especially as things do change. The IMF notes about the term developing economy in developing country. This classification is not based on strict criteria, economic or otherwise, and that it's done in order to facilitate analysis by providing a reasonably meaningful method of organising data. Yes, same point. Many experts think it's time for the term to be abolished. Bill and Melinda Gates certainly think the phrase is passé. Hans Rosling also argued that the terms developed and developing are no longer real, they no longer exist, and using the term developing is intellectually lazy. He says we need to start classifying countries more precisely. I think that is true. I think also in developing, I think people refer to developing countries, part of it is also a mission to raise awareness and understanding of how the world works, and I think that element of it we've understood, we now need to go to the next level of how the world works, because regardless of COVID, it's fully integrated, and we're going to have to get used to it. So the greater precision is going to uh, help with the general understanding of everything around us and how we coexist with other countries. Now, according to the World Bank, here are some problems with the term. Developing countries are increasingly dissimilar. This is the big one. For example, the term, uh, the term groups Malawi, which has a GNI per capita of $250, with Mexico, which has a GNI per capita of, per capita of nearly $10,000. B, the category is no longer distinctive. If you spend time in, quote-unquote, a developing country, there is a huge difference between being in a place that, let's say, has had rapid growth and has enormous amounts of wealth that's generated, many industries are flying, but still has uh, low enough wages that cost bases are still low, which is also something that they would often want to do in their own interests. Um, you have a quality of life that's especially on the higher end of living, that's pretty similar to any Western capital um, or other developed capital. 
The second is, even at the sort of lower end of things, quality of life in these countries especially tends to be higher than, than what, what most people would expect. Uh, people are not dying, and this is arguably really the success of uh, capitalist initiatives that have been funded and also enterprises that are getting uh, life-saving uh, sanitization products to people in remote areas. But people are not dying in the same numbers of disease that we expect. Also, diseases have been eliminated either through habitat change or uh, vaccination. So that's had a big effect. Also, just getting doctors out there and getting medical knowledge out there. Whereas a country like Malawi is vastly different. It is, it is sort of like comparing... Well, I don't want to draw an unfair comparison here, but, but the difference is between two hundred and fifty dollars and $10,000. I think that says it pretty succinctly. Prospect magazine believes part of the issue is because the term was set decades ago and much about the world has changed. Number one, it was set decades ago. Decades ago, the world was in the Cold War and there was a distinction between parts of the world that don't really apply now other than what they were formerly. And also, decades ago, you had World War II and the reconstruction of Europe. And then once that proved to be somewhat successful pretty quickly the construction of the rest of the world is people sought independence. So really it was a term of, okay, what do you call a country that's now newly independent? Well, you want to recognize its independence and not have that be considered a question or rather something worth commentary. So developing country comes into it. And building on that, conditions of individual countries have changed. For example, South Korea, still defined as a developing country on the World Trade Organization or within the World Trade Organization. But the truth is, its per capita income has doubled over the, over the past two decades. And if, if you've ever been to South Korea, you'll notice that the term developing country is sort of practically hysterical when you go around Seoul and see just how incredibly advanced everything is. Second, our overall understanding of development worldwide has changed. In the past, industrialization was often taken as an indicator for development. But with advancements in technology, it is no longer the case. Developing countries, so to speak, are leapfrogging the stages of industrialization and going straight to digitization. Because, well, why wouldn't they? The picture of development has gotten more complex. Countries have advanced at different paces and in different ways. And we have come to acknowledge that the challenges of poverty and inequality are not restricted to specific corners of the world. And they aren't, because the challenges are far more complex and dynamic than they were before. Or maybe they were, we just didn't know. So now we move into our second major issue here, criteria. Here are the common characteristics of a developing economy from the intelligent economist. First of all, low per capita real income. This results in low saving and low investments. Since people spend whatever they make, this creates a cycle of poverty that most populations won't be able to escape. Second, a high population growth rate. More mouths to feed. C, high rates of unemployment, less ways to feed them. D, dependence on primary sectors, i.e. less on innovation, just the basic things that you can get done. And E, dependence on exports of primary commodities. If you're reliant only on commodities, you're totally hooked into the prices of those commodities and the demand fluctuations that they have. By having no diversity and no investment in order, sorry, no ability to make the investment and to create economic diversity, that is a very unhappy situation. Meanwhile, one article from the FAO recognized developing economies share three straits. One, a small domestic market. Sorry, I'm flicking between one and A, but I hope you understand. A small domestic market, except for certain countries, most developing economies have small GDP and rather small populations, resulting in a small domestic market. 
This suggests low domestic competition for businesses. Competition drives innovation, creates wealth. B, limited natural resources. Again, with the exception of a few countries, some of whom have very successfully parlayed natural resource wealth into other, uh, parts, of, other parts of the economy. Most developing economies have limited land or resources to cultivate, or resources to cultivate the land. Therefore, the land available for productive purposes is limited, and if they want to produce, they're generally going to have to go do a deal with a massive foreign company in order to get the equipment to extract that wealth, which means they have an appalling negotiating position. And this has happened a lot. It happened with Freeport in Indonesia in the early 1960s, which they have managed to renegotiate because the country has generated a lot of wealth. But this happens, I believe, in Mozambique, there's a $20 billion oil and gas project that I'm not sure ever did get off the ground. But this is something that is only possible through outside investment. I think that might have uh, international organization backing. C, the high degree of openness to agricultural trade. Developing economies are highly dependent on international trade, especially agriculture. Most depend on one or a few export commodities for a high portion of the export earnings, resulting in vulnerability in changes to the global market. I didn't even know this point was going to come up, but I guess it really just comes down to lack of diversification and the effect that can have on everything. The UNDP's uh, country classification system is calculated from the Human Development Index. It also recognises other aspects of development, such as political freedom and personal security. And the World Bank's classification takes into account the country's gross national product. The IMF uses three criteria to classify countries. Per capita income level, export diversification, degree of integration into the global financial system. That last one's really interesting, and what the IMF does take it seriously is that, I would argue, is a reflection of how investment and use of wealth is actually playing out in real time, as opposed to trying to go and and, and measure everything that's happening within the economy that attempts at diversity. Their degree of success is quite well reflected in how they engage with the global financial system. But at the same time, they are important different classifications but also really quite similar. Now, as a country develops, though, and this is the problem we have now, those mean different things. Or rather, those may all have applied to developing countries at one time, but they're now all at completely different levels, which means an accurate picture does not exist. So, challenges. High inflation, further upward acceleration of global inflation from record low levels may impair efforts in emerging and developing economies to sustain the low inflation environment achieved over the past several decades rather self-explanatory, although I do like the term emerging. I try to use that more because I think that more accurately describes, I guess, what I would, what most people would consider developing economies like Mexico, like uh, Nigeria, like Indonesia, whereas it's not really fair to call them developing in the sense that they are like um, nations that are truly suffering from those conditions um, at a far worse rate. But these are countries with extremely developed economies that are very vibrant, high growth rates, and uh, great diversity in what they're doing. Still reliance on certain exports, especially natural resources, but uh, clear moves away and successful moves away that are ongoing. High inflation can fall disproportionately on the poor who hold most assets in cash and rely heavily on wage income. High inflation has been associated with slower economic growth, making efforts in reducing inequality and poverty harder. You need the fast growth. Common challenges include corruption, poor infrastructure, a lack of skilled labour, political instability, weak protection of intellectual rights, and the possibility of contracts being cancelled on a whim. A lot of that does happen, but not all of it all the time everywhere. Some countries have masses of skilled labour, mixed infrastructure, 
Um, high corruption, but relatively low crime. Uh, somewhat stable political system, although with occasional wobbles, but terrible intellectual rights and possibility of contracts being cancelled or enforced. I think I'm sort of seeing the pattern emerging here is these are the, the, the I guess, the initial problems that a developing country would have had, but it solves some of them and, and the others get left behind. But the idea is that you'll eventually catch up. You can't fix everything. Now, when you want to define a developing country, although we haven't got there yet in the future or in um, new in countries that are still very poor, crime and corruption are top problems in emerging and developing economies. 83% of people across 34 emerging and developing economies say that crime is a very big problem in their country, and 76% say the same about corrupt political leaders. Certain countries that are very poor will have very high crime and very high corruption because they'll be somewhat lawless because the state will not have the wealth and the power in order to enforce um, or rather in order to monopolize the use of force in its given area, or if they do, it'll be corrupted. Other issues people worry about in developing economies include healthcare, poor quality schools, water and air pollution, and food safety. Other issues seen less pressuring include electricity shortages and traffic. Electricity shortages are very annoying and they can be very bad when they happen, but comparatively speaking, it's not that bad. Traffic, yes. I think until you've seen the world's worst traffic, you don't really realise how bad it can actually be and how much it it messes things up and makes development a, a problem, makes getting things done a problem. really has a huge, huge kind of incredible effect. But ultimately, it is livable. Here are five major obstacles to economic growth, though. There's interlocking various circles. The most fashionable concept is the circle of poverty. Poverty itself is a major obstacle to growth and development. At the same time, if a country itself doesn't develop, it can't escape poverty. On the other hand, poverty and low wages leading to low investment, while low productivity of labour leads to poverty. Poverty also accompanies by low level of skills and literacy, which in turn prevents the adoption of new and improved technology. You need to find a way to break the wheel. Population problems. Next one. This started with a rapid population growth that can cause several problems such as high unemployment rate due to scarcity of capital goods, low standard of living, especially in densely populated areas, and a wide gap between the poor and the rich. It is kind of a hallmark of a developing country that when people start to get rich, the few of them who do will get extremely rich because they've kind of cracked the code and they've managed to uh, make the market somewhat captive and they're highly successful. But rapid population growth and unemployment is one thing. I think underemployment's a more interesting phrase. Because that people tend to do odd jobs to get by, and that happens a lot, especially in densely populated urban areas that people migrate to because there's more wealth there. Next, the difficulty of adapting to... So one more point on that, and what we'll touch on again, less infant mortality, uh, safer sex, uh, better access to medical professionals means more kids, more people are growing up, which is a good thing, generally speaking, but can have negative effects. The difficulty of adapting Western technology. Problems arise because technologies are mostly not suited for developing economies. They weren't developed for there. Technology is mainly capital using, and these developing countries are capital scarce. Classic solution here is power and creating a solar-powered generator that can be run in a remote village uh, based on somewhere that has a lot of sun. Next, the lack of preparation for the Industrial Revolution, for an Industrial Revolution. For industrial development to happen, social and economic groundwork must be laid First, the problem is developing economies, agricultural and commercial sectors have not sufficiently developed to sustain rapid industrial progress. And lastly, in this section, international context. Most developed countries nowadays grew with the help of foreign capital in the past. Think Marshall Plan post-World War II. But the climate for investment 
in developing economies cannot support foreign capital. They don't want foreign people to own everything that they have, is another really important point. And it's fair enough. So there has to be a balance. Now the next section, opportunities. Many developing countries have a comparative advantage in agriculture. Agriculture still accounts for almost 70% of total employment in low-income countries. Beyond these traditionally important sectors, it is essential to harness the technological innovation and entrepreneurship that the digital age has unleashed. Really important. That's actually where you see the most exciting developments, is in tech, in new enterprise, in uh, production, in automation systems, and how automation systems are managed, and how services are provided internationally. Which is why there's so many entrepreneurship opportunities in developing countries. They're a lot of fun to work in, because they are exciting. Things change every day, and there's new ideas every day, and it's never a question of whether you're in a place, in the right place for it. There's no question you're in the right place for it. It's whether you can make it work in that place. That's how much potential is there. Developing economies have seen strong GDP growth fueled by small and medium enterprises. Formal SME, SMEs contribute up to 60% of total employment and 40% of GDP in emerging economies. So it's not just letting big conglomerates form. It's, it's encouraging the smaller, the mum-and-pop shops and everything in between to thrive as well. The World Bank estimates 600 million jobs will be needed in the next 15 years. And in emerging markets, SMEs create four out of five formal jobs. These SMEs, however, are underserved by the financial markets. The International Finance Corporation has estimated the unmet demand for SME financing in developing economies to be as high as $1.1 trillion. Really good idea. The biggest micro-lender in the world, Bank Racket Indonesia, they have, you know, even boats to get to remote islands in order to reach unbanked populations. Getting people in to the financial system does make their lives a lot easier. It's an ongoing challenge. There's a whole host of, of factors that you need to deal with when you're trying to, trying to solve the problem. Literacy is one. Accessibility is another. Trust is another. Uh, criminality in terms of people um, kind of conning people out is another as well because their criminals will also attempt to take advantage of, of the same lack of knowledge but also huge potential as um, legitimate players will be. And a lot of this is being solved with digitization and smartphones and developing secure apps and technologies. And every different developing country you go to will have different preferences, but they'll all work and they'll usually focus around, let's say, having a village ATM or just basically having a smartphone. E-trade opportunities. The digital economy is reshaping international trade as business practices change and new business intermediaries emerge. Unfortunately, based on a survey, there has not been a concerted effort within the business community of most developing and transition economies either to acquire e-competency or to use internet as a tool to increase or at the very least maintain international competitiveness. I do think this is changing in a lot of countries. They have recognized the need to do this, although not universally, but it is incredibly important to do to kind of get to that level of competition. Four lessons developing countries can learn from advanced economies, from Brookings. One, governments can advance development even with low levels of government spending. While working on strengthening domestic taxation and raising more revenues to finance public goods, the priority needs to be on improving the business environment to attract private capital, mobilizing private finance for development. So developing the financial sector, as usual, is such an important part of this. Second, though, um, really interesting is the point on taxation. Just taxing loads of money obviously never works, ever, um, especially when you're dealing with a situation where the people that, you, that are most effectively and represent the largest tax base are sort of everybody who's reasonably well off but not super rich. Um, that category is, is not as abundant in developing countries. And so you have to tax the lower part of the population and then the higher, highest or the wealthiest part of the population will have access to basically getting the money offshore, hiding it, or just having it in tax, uh, 
tax-friendly regimes. But there are measures that they employ to try to get back. Tax amnesties, bring your assets back and we'll just agree a flat rate and all sins forgiven. Governments are trying to solve this. And I think getting that money back into the country's actual financial system is going to be the key. Many of the leaks from uh, the Panama Papers, there were state officials and also businessmen from all sorts of developing countries hiding masses amount of money overseas. It just highlighted this problem. There has to be a way of getting people back in willingly because they're just going to keep finding ways to hide it if you don't. Today's developing economies need to focus on building fiscal and market institutions before rising spending needs and not after they materialize. Next, government spending by today's developing economies is likely to increase. Expectations are higher and expectations of what you want from the government are higher, i.e. universal health care or at least universal health insurance. But there is a choice to make to the extent of redistribution and government services. And finally from Brookings, government spending has been counter-cyclical since World War II in almost all advanced economies. Even with a sustained trend of spending increases, countercyclical fiscal policy is a must for today's developing economies, especially for those with abundant natural resources. Yet the evidence shows that fiscal policy has been consistently pro-cyclical in developing countries, resulting in profound macroeconomic imbalances, unproductive debt build-ups and ongoing instability. Basically, if you push too hard one way and you don't push back the other way, it's going to be really bad in, a certain, in, in certain categories, just like they say. I'm just going to see if I can find a definition of here for countercyclical spending that is a, a bit more eloquent than that if my analogy wasn't good enough. Countercyclical fiscal policy takes the opposite approach, reducing spending and raising taxes during a boom period and increasing spending and cutting taxes during a recession. So balancing the books, or at least attempting to give it a nod, rather than saying, yes, we'll spend, yes, we'll lower tax, and everything at the same time. Effectively, just you know, do it holistically or you know, common sense. Well, it's easier to say common sense from afar. Politics is different. And certainly when you're talking about people who want security and um, can't necessarily uh, be expected to engage on the political level that we might assume that they can coming from developed countries. It's all about balance. Now the next section, five. Experts and professional opinions. This is just a list of quotes from politicians that I like and I felt were necessary to include. People want economic development first and foremost. The leaders may talk something else. You take a poll of any people. What is it they want? The right to write an editorial, as you like. They want homes, medicine, jobs, schools. That's Lee Kuan Yew. And, you know, one of the pervading fantasies within developed economies by people who've only ever lived in them is that they assume that the interests of people around the world align with theirs. Therefore, they try to represent them um, on their behalf, which is infantilizing um, and somewhat patronizing, even if it may be coming from a good place. Uh, it isn't a good thing. And it is astonishing that when you speak, um, especially with younger people, they do not seem to have any perception of just how incredibly fortunate uh, position it is to be born in a developed economy. And, and how, and I remember when I moved to a developing economy, how I took infrastructure for granted in ways that I never could have imagined and learning about how pipes worked and the ways that I can actually affect a country and hundreds of millions of people's lives just didn't even occur to me before I went there. But now it's all I can think about. When you think about what's important to people, it's security, homes, medicine, jobs, schools. So Lee Kuan Yew is right. However, in this quote, he is also defending the restriction of the press, which I don't agree with. However, double however, Singapore is an extraordinary success. However, triple however, Singapore is a small country in a city state, but a shining example of what can be done in a short period of time with the right focus, with the right attitude and with the right commitment. And to be fair, with the right leadership. Overcoming poverty is not a gesture of charity. It is an act of justice. It is the protection of a fundamental human right 
the right to dignity and a decent life. Nelson Mandela. I really like this. Overcoming poverty is not a gesture of charity. It is an act of justice, protection of a fundamental human right, the right to dignity and a decent life. It's not a gesture of charity. This is why I don't particularly like, not that I have any necessarily a problem with them, the appeals uh, for, uh, that, that are broadcast on TV. Um, I think they appeal to the wrong part of us. I also don't agree with, and I don't think Nelson Mandela actually means this here, um, with, with, with pursuing justice as the means for it, because that's, that's inherently divisive and, and, and goes straight for a political argument, which almost always leads to enormous bloodshed, especially as it's usually propagated by people who are going to be miles from the bloodshed, or usually in countries that have no risk of actually facing that bloodshed. But Nelson Mandela is right. It's a question of allowing people the ability to live in peace and freely, and it's been massively successful. The dire poverty of some is not an affliction that impacts only those who are deprived. It reverberates across the globe and ineluctably impacts negatively on the whole of humanity, including those who live in conditions of comfort and plenty. Nelson Mandela again, and spot on. And that's the point. We feel free. Now we are really self-reliant. This is the great advantage of teaching ourselves to become a free people, no longer one that always asks, aid, aid, please. Quote from Sukarno, the founding father of Indonesia and its first president. I think hearing that in Indonesian would uh, is, is spine-tingling. There's a couple of leaders on here. In fact, every leader so far, Lee Kuan Yew, Nelson Mandela, Sukarno, that are you know mythic in their stature and unified countries and kept them together through extraordinary periods. Just uh, really, really like the language there. Just a great orator. Next one, countries. Countries have the right to development, but they should view their own interests in the broader context and refrain from pursuing their own interests at the expense of others. Xi Jinping. Well, countries need to manufacture products that are not made in India, but made for the world. Narendra Modi. I think this is a key perspective. Regardless of what we're trying to do, we are in a globalized world, and that is how we should be approaching the situation and not trying to divide so much by country in terms of how we interact with each other. Mahatma Gandhi, next quote. There's enough on this planet for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. Many people may think, now I can see the sun of freedom shining. Richness will pour down like manna from heaven. I tell you, there will be nothing from heaven. We must all work hard with our hands to save ourselves from poverty, ignorance and disease. From Jomo Kenyatta. Brilliant quote. And also speaks so well to the empowerment of developing countries. Sorry, not developing countries, emerging to measure a country's wealth by its gross national product is to measure things, not satisfaction. Julius Nyerere. This is a really key point. Just pointing to gross national product and not the quality of life where the people are located is extremely misleading. That's definitely true. Bhutan couldn't be called rich, but to say it's poor just seems insane given its insular and protected beauty. Now the final section here on the Millennium Development Goals. I want to end on a positive note. These are goals that were set out that basically were ambitious and kind of pretty unlikely, but were extremely, extremely successful in the end. So much so we've had to change the definitions of poverty because so many people were no longer in the previous definitions. So were the Millennium Development Goals a success? Yes. The UN set these like 15 years ago. Oh, sorry, 20 years ago in 2000. And 15 years later, they lifted more than a billion people out of extreme poverty, made inroads against hunger, enabled more girls to attend school than ever before, and helped protect the planet. Inequalities remain, but let's look at these one by one. MDG 1, eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. 
the target of reducing extreme poverty rates by half, was met five years ahead of the 2015 deadline. Globally, the number of people living in extreme poverty has fallen from 1.9 billion in 1990 to 836 million in 2015. The target of halving the proportion of people suffering from hunger has narrowly been missed. The the proportion of undernourished people in the developing regions has fallen from 23.3% in 1990 to 12.9% in 2014. Still a massive improvement, an extraordinarily large improvement. And the point about extreme poverty... Some cynics say, well, yeah, but if it was less than, you know, if you, if you put it just slightly higher than $1.25 a day, the change isn't there. Actually, the change is there across the board. It doesn't matter where you set, set the bar. And, you know, if you say, well, what difference does it make if we're talking about $1.25 a day? It could be, you know, that's so awful, it's unthinkable. Well, not being at that level and getting above it is a big deal to the people who were below that level. Again, it's a question of who's it important to, the people who it's benefiting or the people who get to talk about it from a privileged position. MDG 2, achieve universal primary education. Primary school enrollment figures showed an impressive rise, but the goal of achieving universal primary education just been missed, has just been missed, but the enrollment rate reached 91% five years ago, up from 83% in 2000. Sorry, I have slightly old data, but the numbers are still going up in the 1990s percentage-wise. MDG3, promote gender equality and empower women. About two-thirds of developing countries achieved gender parity in primary education, progress particularly strong in Southern Asia. Only 74 girls were enrolled in primary school for every 100 boys in 1990. Today, 103 girls enrolled for every 100 boys. So... Huge success. MDG4, we touched on this already, but really important, reduce child mortality. Global under five mortality rate has declined by more than half since 1990, dropping from 90 to 43 deaths per 1,000 live births. Short of the targeted drop of two-thirds, but that means 16,000 children under five continue to die every day from preventable causes, so work to be done but still a massive achievement. MDG5, improved maternal health. Maternal mortality ratio has been cut nearly in half. It falls short of the two-thirds reduction, but still half. MDG6, combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, and other diseases. Mixed results here. Uh, Halting and beginning to reverse the spread of HIV, AIDS has not happened, although the number of new infections has fallen 40%, at least. According to the UN, over 6.2 million malaria deaths have been averted between 2000 and 2015, primarily of children under five years of age in sub-Saharan Africa. Global malaria incidence rate has fallen by an estimated 37%, a mortality rate of 58%. Big reductions then. Interesting to see Interesting to see what these numbers are going to be in 2030. MDG7, ensure environmental sustainability. Between 1990 and 2015, 2.6 billion people gained access to improved drinking water, meaning the target of halving the proportion of people without access to safe water was achieved worldwide. I love this. 2.1 billion people have gained access to improved sanitation, and sanitation saves lives. Also, I mean, the population has continued to grow. MDG8, The final one, develop a global partnership for development. Official development assistance from wealthy countries to developing countries increased by 66% in real terms up to 2014 from 2000, reaching $135 billion. So this is continuing. Now the successor is the sustainable development goals. We'll see where they get. But I think this underlines the point that massive change has happened in the countries. Massive population change, demographic change, empowerment change, and now I think definition change. We're we're becoming a closer world. Just in the time that the Millennium Development Goals were being undertaken, digitization was spreading rapidly. The technological revolution, the social media revolution was all taking place. And that's all informing what's happening now and what will continue to happen in the future. I don't think it's a coincidence that they happened at the same time, but I am extremely excited to see what new roles developing countries are going to step into 
and how we're all going to continue to interrelate and help those countries that are still falling short of living standards that we believe are their fundamental right. Thanks so much for listening in. I hope I didn't sound too, you know, anything negative, but uh, I certainly enjoyed speaking about something that I find very interesting and something I could speak about for hours on end. For now, though, I'll leave you. Many thanks for listening and please listen again next time.